In Jesus' name. Everyone says, Amen. Amen. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you, team. Good morning, everybody. And good morning to those of you joining us online. So as Andrew said, over the past couple of months, we've been walking through Exodus as a journey, right? We've been visiting Egypt through film, seeing all the sights, and learned about how God has powerfully been moving his people in his rescue plan, out of slavery into freedom. If you've missed some of those messages, I encourage you to go back to YouTube, look them up, get caught up so you can start back together with us when we start back later this summer. But for the coming weeks, as Andrew said, we're going to be entering into a new series. So we're taking a break from Exodus, so you can think of it as like Exodus season one is over. There's a little hiatus. Season two is coming soon, but today we're stepping into our new summer sermon series. We're calling this series um, Blowing Water, as you see in Chosoit, probably the most Hong Kong title you could give a sermon series, but let me explain to you why. Blowing water is a direct translation for the Cantonese slang phrase choso, right? To choso or to blow water means to have a chit-chat or conversation with someone. For example, this morning, as I was stopped by at 7-Eleven, I got caught. I was late to work because the guy was trying to talk to me about my YUU points, okay? And we got this whole thing about, hey, you know, and all this kind of stuff. Link your U account to your Octopus card, and, you know, you don't have to put out your... It was like a 10-minute conversation about YUU, okay? But, yeah, that was a conversation, right? Or maybe when you write in a taxi or go to the market, whoever it is that you encounter, if you stop for a minute to have a chat, um, you can say, right? imagine like saliva being blown out your mouth. It's kind of gross, I know, okay? I think that's the idea. <laughs> but a little while ago, I got a random message from a, a no number. We've all been getting these a lot recently, right? And um, the way this, part, this person started the conversation was, hi, hey, it's me. Do you have time for a chat? Now, my curiosity peaked. Because most normal people, most normal people would have said to themselves, don't know this number, right? Spam, report, block, move on, okay? Most normal people. I, however, was on a long bus ride home. I had all the time in the world, right? So I decided to engage. I decided to reply to see where this conversation would go. Oh, hi, sorry, who are you? And then the guy replied, oh, it's me, Walson. Auntie Chan son. Oh, yeah, I remember Walson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How are you? Right? And so for the next 45 minutes, actually, in fact, for the next couple of weeks, okay, it started to get a bit weird, so I stopped, okay? <laughs> but I pretended to be Jenny, okay, a middle-aged sales lady who recently had a heart broken because my pet cat just died, my boyfriend broke up with me, I didn't know what to do with my life, right? And it turned into this really fascinating conversation. Okay, if you look through messages, it's, it's, it's weird, okay? But he was trying to be kind this whole time. He was trying to be comforting, a little bit creepy. But I knew where this was heading, right? This was heading towards him asking me for money, right? This was a scammer, right? They're trying to use this conversation to build trust, to build a relationship. In the end, they probably asked for money or credit card, something like that. Now, if you look in the news lately, right, so many stories about people being duped or tricked, swindled, and convinced out of large amounts of money precisely because of conversations like the one I had with Walson, right? Over $1 billion have been lost through scams, apparently. And maybe think, why? Well, I think it's because conversations are powerful, right? We crave connection through conversation. 
In fact, I would say conversations are essential in how we build relationships with each other. Conversations have the ability to stir our emotions, to comfort us, to make us weep, to make us laugh, to motivate us to do good or to do bad. And this is why these scams work so well, simply because these people are good at conversing, right? They're, they're so compelling. Think back to some conversations you might have had. Maybe sadly you've been a victim of one of these scams and you've lost money and lost other resources because of this. Maybe it's a tough conversation you had with your boss. Maybe it was bringing bad news to someone that you loved. Or maybe it's staying on the phone with your crush till 3 a.m. saying, you hang up, no, you hang up, no, you hang up. I'm looking at you, Bernice. <laughs> My conversation is this, right? The right conversation can leave a deep impact and maybe even change our lives altogether. Right, one of the most memorable, impactful conversations that comes to mind was when I called my wife, my wife Brittany, when I called her mom uh, to ask for her permission to ask if I could propose to her daughter, right? I, it was through the phone because she lives in the US, but my hands were shaky, my palms were setting, I remember stumbling over my words, and in the end, she gave me the blessing. Now I think about it really quickly for some reason, okay? But that conversation has had an impact on my life for the rest of my life. So this made me think also, well, who is it that's the master of conversation? Who left people wondering, where did this person receive their power, wisdom, and authority from every time after talking to them? Who was the person that could literally set people free from the suffering with just the power of his words? This, of course, is Jesus. And so over the coming weeks, we're going to be looking at conversations Jesus had with different people. And as we look at these conversations, hopefully what we will find is um, some new and fresh perspectives. We draw out truths and insights you may not have noticed before. And I hope that with each conversation we look at, we'll also, hearing, we'll also hear Jesus speak to our doubts, our fears, our failings, our sorrows, our setbacks, our insecurities, and challenge us to live a life more in line with his purposes. At the same time, by examining these dialogues, I hope that we can learn to engage in authentic, life-altering conversations with those around us that lead people and point people to where Jesus is. Because one thing's for sure, everyone who spoke with Jesus left forever changed. And so when we too are motivated by the love of Jesus, the power of God, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, our conversations too can have the same impact as those around us. So we're going to start in John chapter 8. It says this, But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and, sat, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let one who is without sin be the first to throw the stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground at this hoop. And at this, those who heard began to walk away one at a time. The older ones first until only Jesus was left. 
with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. This is a very well-known story in the New Testament. Um, however, if you read it in your Bible, you might see there's a little side note, right? Because, and there is a, the problematic, because um, in some early manuscripts of we have what we have of the scriptures right now, this story isn't present in there. Right? Scholars think it's a bit out of place. It doesn't fit in with the context before and after. Um, without going into too much detail, though, the general consensus is that even if those problems exist, we can still trust that it's an accurate account, reliable enough for us to study and to preach on. And if you really want to get into ask, asking more questions about the scholarliness or all of it, send me an email, I'll forward it to Andrew, and he can tell you all about it, okay? <laughs> so let's go back to the passage and take a deeper look. First two, at dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people were gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. And often when we think about Jesus' ministry, we think about the things he did. The miracles, walking on water, feeding the 5,000, um, healing the sick, turning water into wine. There's a lot going on in the life and activity of Jesus. But when we look at the book of John specifically, the focus isn't so much on Jesus' actions and his activities, but rather it's Jesus' words. Right? Not surprising since the book of John starts by describing Jesus as the word becoming flesh. So we have, here we have Jesus sitting in the court, using his words to teach a group of people around him. Common occurrence through the Gospels. It tells us all the people were gathered around him. Right? The fact is that Jesus was attracting a crowd of all sorts of people, maybe a bit like this right now. This is important to take a note of, because it meant that Jesus' popularity was rising, much to the anger, of course, of the religious authorities at the time. In fact, by this time in his ministry, there were already people trying to kill Jesus because of the things he was saying and teaching. Right? He was saying things like, I am the bread of life that came down from heaven. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and who believes in me will never be thirsty. So to them, this was blasphemy. Right? How dare Jesus say words like this? How dare he claim himself to be God? Jesus, however, continued to meet and teach in public in order to declare the truth of who he was, who his father was, what he came here to do, despite the threats that he was receiving. One thing that hopefully you will notice throughout the series is that the reason why Jesus was so impactful in his conversations he has with people is because he is always fully confident and fully obedient in his calling and his identity. Right? He never wavers when he's challenged. He doesn't back down, even if people are threatening him, even if they're threatening to kill him. At the same time, though, he isn't arrogant or self-righteous. He simply stands firm on the foundation of truth. So this made me think, what about the conversations I have with people about Jesus? Am I always able to stand firm in my belief of him as my savior? It's hard to do sometimes because, you know, talking about Jesus and the things he did sounds weird, right? Some of the things he did are almost, I mean, they sound unbelievable. And so either I avoid talking about him because I don't want to face those sort of difficult and weird conversations, or when I get challenged about it, I start to be shy and I start to waver, change the topic or something like that. 
Ask yourself this question this morning. Is my life, are my convictions built upon the foundation of Jesus? Because if they're not, then every time we're challenged about him, every time we are asked a difficult question, we might buckle. We might sway to the left or to the right. We may give in to people's fears. And that never leaves much room for a good conversation. Church, the first challenge this morning is to be confident in our faith. Because if not, our conversations will never display a living faith. We cannot communicate something that's not first inside of us. Therefore, if we want to have conversations about Jesus, we must be strongly rooted in our love and our belief of him. So Jesus is there. He's teaching the crowds when he is dramatically and rudely interrupted. It says, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? Being interrupted is really annoying, right? And if I was Jesus, I'd be mad. Being interrupted is it's just... It's, it's frustrating, it's annoying. Maybe if you have young children or toddlers, you understand what I'm saying, right? My son, Isaiah, sweetest kid, will not shut up, okay? Especially when I'm doing something, okay? I could be in the middle of doing nothing, sitting down, you know, minding my own business. The moment I try to talk on the phone or I want to talk with Brittany, he starts bombarding me with questions, right? Hey, Dada, um, can elephant roll down hills? Hey, Dada, um, can you build a long train track with me? Hey, Dada, hey, Dada, hey, Dada. Why didn't you talk to me two minutes ago? Anyway, so here's Jesus teaching when he's suddenly interrupted. What's his reaction going to be? I think the way Jesus handles himself here proves some good groundwork for the way we can approach um, situations like this in our conversations. As we're about to discover, even though the situation was loud and tense and complicated, very shocking, Jesus stays calm and confident. They bring this woman caught in adultery. They make her stand before the group. Now, let's take a sidestep for a moment and just put yourself in the position of this woman. Imagine what she must have been feeling. Right, firstly, the fact that she was caught in the act of adultery would probably be embarrassing enough. Then she's forcibly brought before a group of strangers, publicly shamed with the sin laid bare for everyone to know about what she just did. It would have been terrifying. Imagine that happening to you right now. When I read this passage, though, it reminded me of another time when Jesus was teaching and he was interrupted, right? And this is a different, um, almost the same situation, but with some big differences. A group of men drag a friend in front of Jesus, right? Jesus is teaching in, in this house when suddenly the roof is ripped open and four friends lower a paralytic man down before the feet of Jesus. And he's interrupted again in the middle of his teaching. But in this situation, Jesus notices the faith of these men. And he heals the paralytic man so he could walk again. The motivations of these men was full of hope and full of faith. Right? They knew of Jesus' reputation as someone who was kind and compassionate and forgiving. And they thought, if, we bring, if only we bring our friend before Jesus, then he will be able to heal him. But in this situation, the circumstances are almost like same, same, but different, right? The Pharisees may not have brought this woman, right? Um, she might not have been physically sick, but she needed help nonetheless. 
But their motivations in bringing her to Jesus were not to seek for her healing, for her forgiveness. It's clear that these men were out for blood. I mean, they already announced a death sentence over her. They were not interested in redemption. They were looking at an opportunity for condemnation. But what's even more than this is that, actually, John tells us this situation was a double-edged sword because the Pharisees were really just using this woman to get to Jesus. I mean, if this was really about the law and about being zealous about punishing this woman, this was something that could actually have been probably handled in private, right? They could have brought her in without anybody else around and just dealt with it themselves. If this was really addressing about the sin of adultery, then where was the man in this situation? Shouldn't he have been brought before the people as well? Right? It takes two people to do something like this. And so the fact that the man is not present, they're doing this publicly, is just further proof that this whole scene was simply a setup. The woman was something they were willing to use and to abuse in order to catch Jesus. It tells us this very clearly. They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. Well, accuse him of what? Well, from their perspective, they have Jesus perfectly between a rock and a hard place. Right? It's because they know of Jesus, um, like we said just now, he has, a, he has a reputation for being kind and compassionate and forgiving. They were wanting to use this against him. Right? They're probably thinking Jesus was going to say something like, hey, fellas, you know, okay, okay, come on now. You know what I'm about. I'm about peace and love and forgiveness. Why don't we just let her go? Let her be free. If Jesus had said something like that, then they would have been able to accuse him of directly going against God's law, calling him a blasphemer, and that he too should be punished with death as well. On the other hand, if Jesus had said something like, yes, you guys are right. This is what the law says. She is condemned to death. Come on, guys, let's go and stone her. Then his reputation for being kind and loving and compassionate would have been ruined. And in addition to this, the Pharisees could then accuse him of revolting against the Roman government because, technically speaking, they were the only ones that were able to hand out death sentences to people. But these religious leaders have got it twisted. They've missed the point. They've taken the ideas of justice and mercy and pitched them against each other as enemies. And ironically, they failed to realize that the true definition of justice and mercy was standing right before them. These religious leaders were carrying the attitude of what Jesus was talking about in Matthew 23, where they've shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. They've neglected the more important matters of just law, just, um, of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. And church, this is a reminder this morning for us too. The story of the woman probes our own reflexes towards people who do not fit in into our expectations. I know, I, I know the, in, in fact that there's probably a number of people here who've been through what this woman is going through. Maybe not with adultery or something like that, right? But what I mean is that during a time of struggling, during a time when you were wrestling with your sin and your suffering and your shame, and the reaction you got when people found out was not to help you to heal, but rather it was shame and condemnation. Maybe that's even happened to you here in this community at the Vine. And if that's the case, it should break our hearts and it should lead us to do better. And church, when we approach those who seem to be lost in sin, 
when we have conversations with those who don't fit our expectations, who are struggling with darkness, when we're trying to guide people in the journey of Exodus out of their slavery into freedom, what does our language sound like? Are we judgmental? Are we self-righteous? Are we far too excited when we get an opportunity to point out the speck in someone else's eye without looking at the log that is in our own eye? Because if so, conversations we have with people in this space are never going to be effective. So how does Jesus react? Well, in true Jesus fashion, it wasn't like anybody expected him to. John continues to tell us this. As they were questioning him and questioning him and questioning him, Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. Now, I like to think of, my, I like to think of myself as a good listener. Brittany, my wife, however, would probably tell you I'm not, okay? One of the reasons she doesn't think I'm a good listener is because it never appears as though I'm listening, right? She could be in the middle of telling me about something, weekend plans, something that happened at work, meal prepping, whatever. I don't really listen to what she's saying, right? But, okay. <laughs> in the middle of her talking to me, I will often randomly get up and try to do and go and do something else, right? Like maybe clean up a mess with the toys or, um, you know, fix the bookshelf or something like that, okay? And because I'm doing something else at the same time, it seems like I'm not listening. I reassure, yes, I am actually listening. It's just that my mind gets easily distracted and it helps if I'm doing something else whilst listening to it at the same time, right? And it seems as though this is what's happening here. They're berating Jesus with questions and it doesn't seem like Jesus is listening at all, right? Instead, he starts doing something completely random, Right? They kept on questioning him. Jesus, hello, did you hear us? What are you doing? What do you say? What do you say about this situation? Jesus is unfazed. He stays chill. He stays calm. He concentrates on what he's writing on the ground. And we don't really know. If you read commentaries, there's going to be a bunch of theories. What was he actually writing on the ground? We don't know. Right? But the effect it had was providing a pause in a tense moment. Jesus stays calm, he pauses, he thinks, and then he speaks. Right In the middle of being berated by questions, being attacked, his main reaction is not to shout or to yell, to try and put out fire with fire. I know often this is my own um, reaction. When the volume gets loud, you try to match it. When tempers get flared, you feel like you have to stick up for yourself. Right? Many times this happens perhaps in less proud moments of parenting, maybe in a heated conversation between you and your spouse or your partner, your parents or work colleagues. But think about it this way. When was the last time a shouting match led to a good conversation for you? When was the last time someone opened up to you after you yelled at them? Jesus demonstrates a different model for us to follow. Right? He takes on the wisdom of Proverbs a fool gives full vent to a spirit, but a wise man or woman quietly holds it back. Church, if we really want to be able to dialogue with each other in this space, we must learn to be able to hold our tongue, to keep cool, even when we might be bombarded with accusations and questions. Pausing, thinking, and then speaking could be a fundamental way for us to prevent our conversations from going sideways and we learn to speak from a pace, place of calm and peace. Right, that might mean practicing a bit of deep breathing, right? In for four, hold for seven, out for eight. In for four, hold for seven, out for eight. That might be asking yourself, you know, 
How would I like to be talked to if I was in this situation? Sometimes this might even be walking away to clear your head right before coming back to the conversation. Whatever it is, find the thing that works for you to pause, to think, and then speak. Jesus does this perfectly. And as a result, he gives the perfect answer to this situation. Listen to what he says. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said, let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and kept writing on the ground. If there was a list list of top 10 mic drop moments in scripture, right, this would probably be one of them. The perfect answer to the situation. Why? Well, remember, this whole thing was actually a setup in order to uh, catch Jesus, try and catch Jesus saying the wrong thing. But this was the perfect answer because, first of all, it didn't deny the law, right? He doesn't say, don't throw the, same, don't throw the stone at her. But at the same time, he doesn't say, what the woman done is okay, just let her go. The fact is, this woman has sinned. And there were indeed laws that say that people who have been caught in adultery should be put to death. Leviticus 20.10, Deuteronomy 22.22. So if we were to paraphrase Jesus' answer, he's saying, okay, yeah, go ahead. Judge this woman. You can throw a stone at her, but before you do that, judge yourself first. What Jesus is able to do with his answer is see right through the motivations of these religious leaders. He struck at their hearts, forces them to examine themselves, and as self-righteous as these religious leaders were, none of them would have been bold enough to say that they were perfect and without sin. And so they're stunned into silence. You see, church, a strong answer doesn't have to be loud. It doesn't have to be harsh or even forceful. Like we said before, all Jesus does is stand firm on the truth. All he does is point to the truth. He doesn't yell. He doesn't shout. He doesn't bash people with scripture. It's not even a long conversation that Jesus has with these religious leaders. He doesn't get drawn into a big, long debate about him. It's not a loud, angry exchange, but with some gentle yet powerful words. Just like when Jesus calmed the storm on the sea, Jesus brings a calm to this hectic situation. And from being a group that were badgering this woman, ready to sentence her to death, Suddenly, they have nothing to say and begin walking away. They walked away because they know that they too would be just as guilty of punishment were they to throw a stone at this woman. So at this, those who began to, heard began to walk away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman standing still there. Jesus had escaped the death. Escape the death and um, save the woman from death and escape the trap set for him. Every single woman who came had a change of for this woman had a change of heart. These people had come to shame the woman, to shame Jesus, but now they were the ones who had to hang their heads in shame and walk away. And after everyone had left, Jesus can finally fully focus on this woman that was being brought before the Pharisees. The word left here is quite interesting. It's not just leave. Actually, in the Greek, it's actually got a strong connotation of being abandoned, right? So this woman had now been left alone and abandoned. She was useless to the Pharisees now. The the, the plan didn't work, so they left her. Everyone else had left her, but not Jesus. 
See, Jesus refuses to abandon her. In St. Augustine, he summarizes the scene beautifully when he talks about this passage in Scripture. There, in the quiet of the mountain, two were left. She standing in the misery of her sin, and he standing in the glory of his mercy. You see, it's only when the environment becomes safe and calm that Jesus finally gets a chance to have a conversation with this woman. And again, it's a short conversation, but it's beautiful and challenging. With the threats and distractions out of the way, Jesus is able to commune with her. Because he knew that before he needed to communicate anything with her, he first needed to commune with her, to look her face to face, to acknowledge her as a person. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. You see, where the religious leaders treated this woman with shame and condemnation, Jesus treats this woman with love and respect. Right? When Jesus says woman, it's not like woman, you know, it's not like that, okay? But it's actually a very, gosh, I'm sorry, okay? It's actually a, a very courteous way, right? The most kind way he could have addressed her. This was Jesus' way of letting her know, hey, it's okay. Everyone else is gone, but I'm still here. You're safe now. I'm here for you. Right? This is an important point for us to keep in mind when we're trying to have conversations with people about tough things. Because if people don't feel safe, they're not going to open up. And our role as people who point people towards Jesus, we must be able to create safe environments for people to truly able to talk about their struggles, their sin, and their fears, their darkness, without them thinking that they might be condemned. And one great way we can do this is share, our, share out of our own brokenness and our own vulnerability. Because when we, let, when we do this, we let people know we're just the same. Everyone in this room, everyone in this world battles with sin. And we all need to bring our sin before Jesus. But when we let people see our journey, that's truly one of the best gifts we can give to someone. To commune with someone, to get to know them before we try and communicate anything with them to embrace their brokenness and vulnerability, to embrace your own brokenness and vulnerability as a point of connection. And as they open up to you, to let them know that they're loved, to let them know that they belong. This is why Jesus' response is so powerful. He says to her, then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. The only person who could have given her the death sentence. The only person who have technically picked up a stone to throw at her. The person who truly had the authority to condemn her has told her she is not condemned. The Pharisees notice the sin and see it as an opportunity to judge and to trap. Jesus notices the sin and sees it as an opportunity to love, to forgive, to show mercy, to give a new life. Now, please don't get me wrong. Jesus is not excusing her sin at all. When Jesus says, neither do I condemn you, he's not saying, it's okay, just go, I don't care. No, Jesus wants this woman to help this woman see that the situation was serious, right? She has literally been rescued for imminent death. But he also wants her to know that now you are free. The sin that held you back, the sin that held you in bondage no longer has any power over you. And now you have a new lease, a new way to live your life. 
You see, what's amazing is that this woman doesn't really know who Jesus is yet. She doesn't know that Jesus is on this mission to the cross. She doesn't know what this, what, what this woman doesn't know in that moment that he loved her so much. He was going to take on that condemnation that was due for her. He was going to sacrifice himself to death so that she wouldn't have to. That's the only way that she, she could have been forgiven. So yes, Jesus offers forgiveness. Jesus forgives, but we must also remember that forgiveness is a costly thing and that we can never treat it lightly. Forgiveness came at the cost of Jesus' life, which means that if we are to receive that forgiveness, it should also come with a change in our lives. Jesus lets this woman know she is loved, sinful yet forgiven. Then and only then does the conversation turn towards asking her to change. Go now and leave your life of sin. It's not just a quaint words. It's not just a cute ending to this story, but it's a deep challenge for the woman now to live by. It demonstrates the forgiving spirit of Jesus and his firm call to live a transformed life. Jesus is telling her that she can start a life anew, but the motivation he's doing that is not through shame, guilt, and condemnation. It's through the full depth of his love and forgiveness. And scripture doesn't tell us what happened next to this woman. But what I like to think is that if she really had been impacted by Jesus in this moment, in this short little conversation, she probably went on to live a life that was marked forever by his love and his mercy. So where does that leave us? Well, in this room right now, we too are not perfect people. Far from it, in fact. And so therefore, this community needs to be a place where we can put down self-righteousness, so that we can enter into conversations with each other when we're struggling with sin and darkness. And we don't need to yell, we don't need to berate, we don't need to condemn. This story proves that often it's the kind, the loving conversations, the ones that confidently but gently point people towards Jesus that become the most effective ones we can have with others. It shows us that when we allow for Jesus to calm the noise and to lead the conversation, that's when lives are changed. When we make space for God in the conversation, he always, always appears to us. So this community needs to be a place where anyone who's struggling with sin can become part of the community and be led to the one who can truly heal and forgive. And often we might find that as we walk and talk with God to others, they too begin to start their own conversations with God. God begins to speak to them in ways, in amazing ways, that you never could if it was just done by your own power. So church, in the coming weeks, as we continue to look at the conversations that Jesus has, as we continue to discover how he engages and speaks with people, I hope that this would be our starting point. May we be a people. May we be a church that speaks truth and love in the darkness with the love and mercy of Jesus. Would you close your eyes, church? I'm just going to pray for us for a minute. This is our hope. This is our goal to be this kind of church, to be the kind of people that have these kind of conversations. 
And perhaps you're in here this morning and you think, oh, actually, you know what? I've been quite angry lately. And even in my own zealousness to bring people to realize who Jesus is, maybe perhaps you've realized you've, you've let anger dictate your words. You haven't taken the time to pause, to think before speaking out. And Jesus is here to remind you, to show you. Yeah, I appreciate the, your heart, but maybe it's time to let go of the anger and embrace my approach. Take on my mercy and impart that to others. Love as I did. And let others know that they are safe, that they don't need to fear your judgment when you open your mouth to talk to them. Maybe you're in this space and you have used your words to condemn others and you're realizing, oh yeah, those words were hurtful. I shouldn't have said those things. Just allow the Spirit of God, the mercy of Jesus to wash over you too. To help you in your further conversations. Maybe you're in this room and you're feeling like that woman and you've been hurt so much. Yes, there are things you know that you're ashamed of perhaps. An area of sin or of addiction of something that's had a grip on you and you've tried to talk to people. But it's often been met with scorn and scolding and you just don't feel safe. You don't feel like, oh, you know, if this is the case, and why should I even bother talking to anybody? If you felt condemnation in this way, know this morning that Jesus doesn't condemn you either. But he wants to draw you in. He too wants, he, he wants to give his mercy and forgiveness to you also. And as you tr encounter the true love of Jesus, his gentle yet strong heart, I pray that you would be let out of your freedom, the chains that hold you, the bondage of darkness, and led into a life with Jesus guiding the way transformed a renewed life and so Lord this is our prayer our words are powerful conversations are are a gift that you've given to us and we can either use it to hurt or to heal and so Jesus may the words that come out of our mouth be drenched by your spirit Lord may the conversations we have about you be full of grace and mercy and wisdom and as we do this, continue to shape and mold us to the people, to the community, to the families that we need to be to show your love to the world around us. We pray in your beautiful name, Lord. Amen.